Ripple is a company that evolved out of the original development of the XRP ledger. It was created by the same people who had originally created the XRP ledger. And the original task was to do something with all the XRP, essentially, to come up with some way to turn that into um, something, you know, something useful and valuable. Today, Ripple is focused on um, essentially make, primarily, I think we're a payments company. We really want to make payments work better. We look at things like remittances and enterprise payments, and they just they don't work for a lot of people. So uh, the, the analogy that I use is like if you've ever sent an email and made an international payment, the two experiences could not be more different. But there's no technical reason why international payments can't be as simple as email. There's just a lot of stuff that needs to be built and developed and, 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 and gotten out there. And so that's like sort of the core problem that, we, that Ripple has been working on. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Wolfson, the host and founder of Web3 Deep Dive Podcast. Web3 Deep Dive Podcast focuses on real-world Web3 use cases to help you better understand how Web3 is being applied today and how it may be leveraged in the future. If this sounds interesting, I encourage you to subscribe, like, and share the content that you're seeing today to help spread the word about Web3. I also want to take this time to thank the sponsors behind Web3 Deep Dive Podcast. Worsta is producing Web3 Deep Dive Podcast and is a global technology consultancy agency with headquarters in Austin, Texas, and Quito, Ecuador. Worsta works with enterprises to help them make better technology decisions for their businesses. I'd also like to thank Banksa. Banksa is a leading crypto payments infrastructure provider. Check them out for your Web3 project today. Today's episode is with David Schwartz. David is the CTO of Ripple. Let's get to it. Hey, David, how's it going? Great, how are you? I'm doing well. It's so good to see you, and it's really good to have you here at the Web3 Deep Dive studio in Austin. This, this studio is amazing. Yeah. And um, thank you. It is amazing. And also, Deanna is joining us again as co-host. Hey, hey David. Good to see you. Great to be here. So, David, before we get started, I have to ask. David Schwartz is your full name. You are the CTO at Ripple, but you go by Joel Katz on Twitter. <laughs> Why is that? Yeah. Yeah, I get this question a lot. And uh, it's actually uh, gates back to when I was in high school pre-internet pre days, um, where there were these things called bulletin board systems, which were like pre-internet ways of communicating with people. And my friend saw, set up a bulletin board system and asked me if I wanted an account, and I said yes. And he asked me if I wanted to use my real name, and I said, hell no. I, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. I had no particular plans, but I just knew that like the answer to that question was definitely going to be no. So he said, well, what name do you want me to use? And I said, I don't know, make one up. And so he, his thought process, Ren and Stimpy was, it was a popular show on MTV at the time. And he, Stimp, Stimpy's full name is Stimson J. Cat. And so he said, okay, uh, we'll, we'll base it off that. We'll just make it a little more human. He made it Stimson J. Katz, which um, was my name for a while. And then I started to use it. I, you know, I had more of an online presence. The internet occurred and, and, and 
I realized I had to have a name that at least sounded human. So I took a lesson from 3M. You know, 3M was originally Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, and they gradually morphed their name to 3M. And nobody today even knows what 3M was originally. Like if you, if I was here from 3M, you would say, "Hey, why 3M?" Like nobody even knows anyone. Totally forgot. It's a great name, right? So I decided I could do the same thing. So I went from Stimson J Cats to Stimson Joel Cats because J has to stand for something, right? Then I went from Stimson Joel Cats to S Joel Cats. Because, you know, if you have a first name that's really weird, sometimes you'll drop it to initial. Then I just dropped the S, and then I was Joel Katz from then on. And as far as anyone knows, I had a normal human name from the beginning. Yeah, well, that's interesting because you have a big presence on Twitter. And I think for a while before I actually met you, I did think your name was Joel Katz. And I was like, oh, David Schwartz. Yeah, I mean, it's not a secret identity anymore. Like originally, people didn't know who I was in real life. And then after a while, you know, I started to become known. In real life. So it's not a secret identity anymore, but it is an alter ego, I suppose. Right. We all have those alter egos. So, um, David, you are the CTO at Ripple. What, you know, what exactly does that mean? What does your role involve? You've been at Ripple, what, you were employee number two, yeah. I think? Yeah. So... It's funny. I was on a podcast for CTOs once, and they, and and um, we t we told them ahead of time that I'm not like a traditional CTO. And so I got it. The first question on the podcast was when they said when they said to me, they said, you know, David, you're CTO at Ripple. Your people told us ahead of this podcast that you're not the traditional CTO. So I just have to ask, what is a traditional CTO? And I thought that was really funny because you know it's one of those roles that you know has different definitions from different people. It's not always a you know a particular set of things that they do. Um, Obviously, a lot of what I do is, is sort of being a technical ambassador for Ripple, talking to people about what Ripple does. I'm the repository as employee number two of all of the decisions that we've made and why we made them. So if somebody looks at something like, why did we do that? You know, I know the reason why we did it. Um, and it may or may or may not hold up over time. But at least like if a decision looks really bad, it helps to know why the decision was made, because maybe there are reasons that you don't know. So I'm the sort of official repository of why we did things the way we did them. Um, but also, a lot of what I do is about the company strategy. We're, um, you know, we're like a leading company rapidly evolving in a rapidly evolving space. And so we're building products for customers that don't exist. And we're trying to predict where the market's going to be when our initiatives come to fruition. And when you do that, um, you can't just ask your customers what they want because your customers don't exist yet or you don't know who they are. And so it's, it's a little bit more of a, of a discipline of tracking what's going on in the space, external changes like regulation, technology, internal ideas that you have, and then aiming that into a strategy and then fine tuning that. And that's a significant fraction of really what all of the senior leadership at Ripple does, but I particularly tend to focus on that. I have zero reports. There's nobody who reports to me. Nobody, there's nobody who will say that I'm their boss, which I like. Um, one of the things that I learned early on is if there's something you have to do, then you have to do it or it doesn't get done. That's what it means when there's something you have to do. When there's nothing that you have to do, that means that you can apply yourself where you think the benefits are the greatest. There's nothing that if I don't do it, it won't get done which is nice. I can go away for a year. I, I would like to think Ripple would do things a little worse. <laughs> if I could go away and everything's exactly the same, why, why am I doing this? But I mean, there's nothing, that, that w nothing specific that wouldn't get done. It's just those things that I add wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And can you explain for the listeners that don't know what Ripple does or what Ripple is, it's a blockchain network, but can you explain you know, what is Ripple? What is the goal behind the platform? 
It's funny that you say that. When Brad Garlinghouse took over as CEO, he gave his speech, you know, and he said, any questions? And the first question that he got was essentially that question. Chris Kanan, our head of engineering at the time, said, what is Ripple? And you should have seen Brad's face because but that's like a great question to ask somebody inside an organization. Like, how? what do you think? Why do you think we're all here? You know, what do you think the purpose of I, I, I just I love that question. Um, so Ripple, <laughs> so it's always hard to figure out what, what, um, what, where to start that answer because there's so many ways that you can sort of approach it. Um, but I'll start by saying like, Ripple is a company that evolved out of the original development of the XRP ledger. It was created by the same people who had originally created the XRP ledger. And the original task was to do something with all the XRP, essentially, to come up with some way to turn that into um, something, you know, something useful and valuable. Today, Ripple is focused on um, essentially make, primarily, I think we're a payments company. We really want to make payments work better. We look at things like remittances and enterprise payments, and they just, they don't work for a lot of people. So uh, the, the analogy that I use is like, if you've ever sent an email and made an international payment, the two experiences could not be more different. But there's no technical reason why international payments can't be as simple as email. There's just a lot of stuff that needs to be built and developed and, 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 and gotten out there. And so that's like sort of the core problem that, we, that Ripple has been working on. Today, Ripple has internally like two, two components of like accomplishing that strategic goal. One of them is RippleNet, which is an enterprise payments platform. Um, it's, it's made for institutional payments and it uh, enables them to settle with a cryptocurrency because it's a modern payment system. It has other advantages too, uh, but like in traditional payment systems like SWIFT, the way that institutional payments are typically made, the money is just sort of pushed out onto the network and you sort of hope it gets to the destination. If it doesn't, you, you, you solve that. Like email doesn't work that way. Email has closed loop messaging. It has error reporting, like all of the things that payments don't, don't have. And then the other side of Ripple, we call Ripple X. And that's the side that's um, building new technologies for the XRP ledger. That's the side that's kind of bringing institutions uh, and Web3 and NFTs together, building open source software and participating in a greater community to build for the XRP ledger. Got it. So we'll focus a little bit more on Ripple X today, just given that this is a Web3 focused podcast. Um, so let's talk about you. First, up, I want to ask you, what is your definition of Web3? Yeah, that's a great that that's a great question. I'm going to give you a little bit of a long answer because I think it's a really, really important question, especially because I'm sure you face pushback from a lot of people who are not in the Web3 space and who will say, is this, a, is this a solution in search for a problem? Is there really anything here? What's wrong with what's happening today? I'll tell you how I, how I see it. I really do see Web3 as a continuation of Web1, Web2. It's not something from outer space. It's not something brand new in terms of what it does. It's new technologically. You know, I, was, I watched the birth of the internet. And before that, if you wanted to consume CNN, you turned on the channel and you got whatever they had on at that moment. If you wanted to consume the New York Times, you bought a newspaper and you got that, con you know, they publish when they publish, you get it when you get it, and you have all the content they want you to have exactly the way they want you to have it. There's no customization. Web one broke that. Web one, I could get to CNN and, and then I could switch to the New York Times and then I could switch to, you know, some other, I could switch from, from, from source to source to source and I didn't have to get, I could get the content that they wanted me to have, but then I could look deeper. I could get the content that I was the most interested in. And that is a sort of democratization of the delivery of information. And then web two, continue that democratization with web two, I could comment on the story 
or I could have a social media presence where people would come to get to get my content. And so instead of me just being a passive consumer of content, I was a creator of content. And I look at Web3 as a continuation of that same movement. So what, what didn't Web2 accomplish? So for example, right now I have a presence on Twitter, but it is subject to Twitter's arbitrary changing of the rules. When Elon Musk took over, he could have made radical changes to the rules that would have made some people were not happy with those. Some people were very happy. But imagine if I built my professional life around Twitter and there were changes that I really, really, really didn't like. They, they, he can ban me because he doesn't, you know, for, for any reason, arbitrarily if he wants, generally doesn't do that, but he could. And then I'm lost like this presence that I built up. And, um, the, and, and there's a financial component to that too, because what's happened is people who have tried to build competing technologies where they've had different rules, you may not like them. A lot of them were terrible. You know, a lot of them are, ter are, are terrible. They're awful places, but they're within the bounds of what freedom of speech is supposed to allow. And what they found is that they can't operate because they get, exclu they get excluded. Companies won't do business with them. And in practice, you can't have a presence on the internet as a business if you can't pay people and if people can't pay you. And so it's a further democratization and Web3 is like the next step in that movement to give people more control over how they produce and consume content. And how you produce and consume content in the Web2 environment is in these, is in these places where you're curating content and you're, you're, you're building a sort of cooperative community. So it's, owner, it's ownership, um, it's in, an inclusion. That's such a great definition. It's um, a long one, though. No, it's it's really good, though, in the way that you summarize it as an evolution, not as something new and scary. And that means blockchain technology sort of came along at the right time. This is a the same thing happened with payments. With or without blockchain, international payments were terrible, and people like don't like them. And if you look at companies like like Uber or Amazon, they have hundreds of payment engineers to make payments work for them. How do you compete with them as a small company if you have to hire hundreds of payment engineers? So like blockchain came along at the right time to solve that problem. That problem was gonna get solved with or without blockchain, but blockchain has the opportunity to be the solution. I think the same thing here. I think that would you can imagine non-blockchain solutions to these problems, and probably if blockchain didn't exist, they would get solved. The question is, blockchain has an opportunity to present better solutions to those problems at the time when they're needed. And, and then it's on us in the blockchain space to produce better solutions than non-blockchain technologies can produce. But the opportunities, there's, there's an actual need that is going to be solved somehow, and blockchain has the opportunity to be the technology that serves it. Yeah, and you, uh, you mentioned another word there. I'm interested to know what it means to you. You said cooperative. Yeah. What, what, why that choice of word? Well, I think like what makes what makes these technologies work is um, is is cooperation. You know, you've, I've I've often talked about people talking about cooperation versus competition. Competition is a highly organized form of cooperation. It's you know, cooperation has to have rules. Competition has to have rules too. Um, what's gonna if you're gonna have ownership over um, over your own content, that means somebody else can't have ownership over it. And so that means that the people who are sort of but other people are going to have to work with you so that people you can't do all of the publication yourself. You can't host it all yourself. Everybody can't operate their own Twitter, right? That's impract it's impractical. So what's going to have to happen is there are going to have to be standards, and there's going to have to be um, it's gonna, interoperability is going to be big. Like the, when you buy home internet access, you don't buy it for any one particular thing. You buy it because of all the things you can do with it, right? It's like, like, I love the fact that I have home internet access and I can access Twitter, but if Twitter was the only thing that I could do with it, I probably wouldn't bother. Like it, it isn't worth it. It's not, it's not a, uh, the value proposition of the internet is whatever you need, you can find there. 
And that's because there's cooperation, not necessarily literally working toward a common end, but there's cooperation in the sense that everybody understands that the value is greater if I can find everything I need there and no one entity is going to be able to provide me everything I need. Um, Ripple cannot be a successful blockchain company if there aren't other successful blockchain companies, just like Google can't be a successful internet company if there aren't other successful internet companies. And it's one of the reasons why some of the tribalism in this space bothers me and frustrates me so much is because we literally cannot succeed without each other. It's not possible. There can't, you can't, a standard can't have one adoptee. The, the value is, is that everybody can find what they want in this, you know, if it's going to if it's going to be this democratization and ownership, that's going to mean that everybody who wants to go there is going to be able to find what they want, and that's going to mean that you're going to have to enable some people to do things that you wish they didn't do, and and that kind of that kind of letting go is going to be going to be challenging to see. There's going to be there's going to be some social change, right? And I'm assuming that's why blockchain is such an important technology when it comes to all of this. This allows for transparency, collaboration, other benefits. Yeah, the the way I usually explain it, you know, sort of technically is, um, I was I've been talking about this several times. I'm talking about how when I first came into the space, everybody thought that proof of work was Bitcoin's secret sauce. And what I said is that's not what the secret sauce is. What the secret sauce is is that all of the system state is public. All of the transactions are public. Everybody knows what every transaction is supposed to do, and there's no central authority that gets to govern the system. Like That's the secret sauce. That means that I, as an independent user of the Bitcoin blockchain, I can make sure that all the system's rules are followed myself. I don't have to trust somebody else to enforce those rules. And I know that those rules are going to be enforced for me because everybody is enforcing them. There's no central party that can be convinced to make some exception to the rules that harms me. And I think if we're, that's, those are exactly the attributes you need if the democratization is going to be real democratization and not fake democratization. So, you know, I probably four years ago, I would not have seen the need for Web3. I would have said, well, this is great. Like anybody can start their own blog. Anybody can, you can start a social media network. Come on, it's not cheap, but like there's no barriers to you doing it other than the fact that like starting a business is is a big deal. And I, I, I probably would have thought that Web2 had, had solved the problem, but you can see today that that's, that's a, not the case. Let's talk a little bit about what Ripple is doing to enable Web3. Because like you said, you know, there's the payment side of things. And when I think of Ripple, I always think about enterprises and payments, just making payments faster and better and easier because that's what Ripple is great at doing. But there's also this other side of Ripple that you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of Web3, what, what is that other side of Ripple doing to enable Web3? I think we're doing a lot of different things, but I'll talk about the one that's most interesting because I think it's most different from what everybody else is doing, and that's why I think I think probably it's the most interesting. Just like when everybody else in the space was focused on bottom-up adoption of crypto, Ripple kind of focused on top-down. Not because we didn't believe in bottom-up adoption, but it's because it's something we felt that we could do and that other people couldn't really do. You know, like a couple of people working on some software, they're not going to be able to make enterprise software that banks are going to use in their payment flows. That's not realistic. You have to have an enterprise to do that. What we're looking at in the Web3 space is very similar. Um, one of the things that we're doing is we're looking at the barriers to enterprise adoption of DeFi and Web3 technologies. What's preventing enterprises from using those technologies? And there's areas in tokenization, in liquidity, in compliance, um, identity, those kinds of barriers to sort of institutional adoption. Just like the, the internet, you know, in the early days, there was, there was adoption by universities, adoption by the military that helped to grow the platform. I think, um, and I think we think, 
that institutional adoption can be a huge driver of DeFi growth and can make it more attractive to these bottom-up approaches. And that's something that is hard to do on a small scale. So that's I think I think that's something where Ripple's unique ability, you know, the things that Ripple has, the people that we have, the money that we have, and the sort of the skill set that we've built around building software that that enterprises can rely on um, is unique. Is unique. Right. And so, are those enterprises that you're building software for? Are they interested in Web three? Do they want to start? I don't know, enabling NFTs to drive some sort of adoption or. The funny thing is, when we started with RippleNet in payments, the enterprises weren't interested at all. And we just said, well, forget about all this blockchain stuff. We'll just make your payments better. And then, of course, we, we had the opportunity to go back and say, hey, now that you guys are interested in blockchain, um, you know, Coinbase going public sort of caused every company to realize, wait a minute, we better have a strategy. You know, like, you know, they went public and they had a market capitalization that was greater than like financial institutions that had been household names for decades. And it was like, we have to have a cryptocurrency strategy. We have to have a blockchain strategy. And I, it, it, was, it wasn't just that. I mean, there were other factors too, but like that was a watershed event. But also there was this gradual trend where, where companies realized that they wanted those things and then there, there we were to provide it to them. And so it doesn't, it, that doesn't, it doesn't, I'm just saying it doesn't have to be the case that people want it in order to justify building it. But I think that there are, we are seeing specific blockers to institutional adoption. Like one of the ones that's the simplest and easiest to talk about is sanctions compliance. So uh, you, uh, your listeners may not know that like the United States government has a list of entities that you are not allowed to do business with. And if you do, the sanctions can be, the punishment can be extremely high. And, and I didn't know I was doing business with them is not an excuse. It's what's called strict liability. Which means if you did it, you, you have to figure out a way not to do it, or you can't do the thing that might create the, the chance that you'll do it. And this is a real blocker to institutional adoption of DeFi. It's just one example, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's for, for many companies, it's like, if, if we can't do sanctions compliance, we can't do it. It's just a hard no. Um, because they're facing potentially tens of millions of dollars, you know, plus in liability, and th there's nothing they can do about it. They're, they're, they're just not going to do it. And so those are problems that are that are very tangible today. And so solutions like identity and sort of creating um, creating a sort of island inside the ocean where where there's compliance. These sort of steps towards compliance will help to bring institutions into the DeFi world. And I think I hope we can do that without trying to change, you, you know, like and. It, Bank of America is not going to use SushiSwap. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like, it's, it's just not going to happen. And SushiSwap is not going to like require people to prove absence of sanctions compliance to, in order to use it because there's just no practical, there's no practical way for them to do that. And so the thing is, if, if what is the solution that doesn't try to, that doesn't, that doesn't try to impose one regulatory regime on an entire blockchain. Like Ethereum is not in the, in the EU ecosystem. The XRPL is not under US government jurisdiction. So the challenge is, if we're gonna have public blockchains that aren't in jurisdictions, how can we allow enterprises to comply with regulations if they want to, which they do, because they won't adopt the technologies if they can't. Banksa is the leading crypto on and off ramp solution. Through an extensive and growing network of global and local payment solutions and regulatory licenses, Banksa helps businesses provide seamless integration of crypto and fiat for global audiences safely and compliantly with lower fees and higher conversion rates. For more information on how to integrate Banksa into your project or product, visit banksa.com. So I think that's really interesting what you just said, because we've been having a lot of conversations here on Web3 Deep Dive about, you know, 
companies using blockchain technology for Web3 purposes. But what you bring up is there's still this barrier that's regulatory. And so I think that in order for mass adoption for Web3 to actually occur, we need those regulatory challenges fixed. It's biggest when you're talking about money, right? Okay. Yeah. So when you're talking about the movement of money, that's that's where it's the biggest. It's not as it's not as big if you're talking about for you know if you're talking if you're talking about other things. But unfortunately, like the most interesting thing is is the movement of money. Mm-hmm. You know, and even if even if you're talking about NFTs, well, what do you want to do with an NFT? You want to buy it? You want to sell it? So like if you're talking about institutional adoption of NFTs, they're going to have to vet who's buying and selling it, and it may not be enough for them to just vet who they're directly buying to. Mm-hmm. You know, like if they have a marketplace and they don't and they, you know, they don't know the path. So so those kinds of challenges. Yeah. Right. So Ripple has implemented it's what is it XLS20? It's an amendment that allows for NFTs to be placed on the XRP ledger. Yeah. So um, there was a there was a method to do it before that called XLS 13 that was basically bashing a square peg in a round hole. It, it was brilliant, but not super efficient. So people actually found a way to put NFTs on the XRP ledger, even though there was no support at all. They found a way to make it work, but it, it was not very scalable. And it was, it, you know, it, it's an outstanding achievement given the fact that there was no support, but it really highlighted the need for some sort of a system that was, you know, optimized and efficient. Uh, Ripple proposed uh, what was then called XLS 20D, meaning not adopted yet a draft, that was a standard for native NFTs on the XRP ledger. There was a whole bunch of community uh, involvement around finalizing that specification and figuring out what what the tra- what what trade-offs people wanted to take. And then XLS 20 went live, I think it was last Halloween, so roughly six months ago. And now there's a thriving ecosystem around native NFTs on the XRP ledger of marketplaces and projects and so on. And, um, and that's, that's been a, you know, a significant area of growth for the XRP ledger and, that, and the ecosystem. Are these just digital art NFTs? Do they have utility behind them? And, and also, I want to know, what are your thoughts on NFTs in general? Most of them are still what I would call collect- collectibles. I think that's still the dominant use case pretty much across the space. I think we're all interested in um, NFTs that are not that collectibles are not interesting and exciting, but it's one of those cases where it doesn't really solve an ex- it doesn't really solve an existing you know, problem. I think areas that are very interesting are things like NFTs that represent real world assets, things like real estate, um, tokenization of ownership of, of you know, of, of objects or, or businesses, those kinds of things. Carbon markets, I think, are very interesting, too. The big problem with carbon markets is the inability to prove the absence of something. So if you sell me a carbon credit, I want to know that you didn't sell that same credit to somebody else. And existing marketplaces, you just have to sort of take the word of some marketplace that they didn't do that. If your project commits to, to trading only carbon credits on the XRP ledger, then I can look at how many carbon credits that you've issued, and I can also look at an audit. It's easy to tell in the real world how much carbon offset you've actually done. It's harder to make sure that you don't sell it more than once. And so that proof of absence is a big one. Um, it's very hard. Future is notoriously hard to predict. And so I don't I, I don't pretend to know what direction these use cases are going to go. But I think all of those things are very interesting. I'll just I'll point out one other that's interesting to me personally, because I think it's a it's, it's a case where there really is a need. Every single one of us probably owns all kinds of digital rights. 
whether it's movies that you've purchased, whether it's books on Kindle, whether it's songs, whether video games, um, you have these bundles of digital rights that you own. And it's a huge thriving industry. And there's no way for you to manage or control them. They're spread out all over the place. So if you rent, if you buy a movie on Hulu, you can only find that movie when you load up the Hulu app. And if you decide that you don't want to use Hulu anymore because you like Amazon Prime better, you have to give up all of the movies you bought on Hulu. And that adds friction to your ability to use the service that works best for you. And so digital rights, uh, NFTs are a really good match for digital for, rights, for, for a sort of neutral interoperable platform. So those kinds of use cases, I think they're, they're, re they're really there. And so I'm, I'm hoping it's not just going to be art and collectibles, but it's very hard to predict. Right, are you seeing any of those use cases being built on the XRP ledger, like digital rights, NFTs, or are you, is it mainly just right now artwork? The biggest ones that we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of interest for carbon markets. We're seeing a lot of interest for real estate, um, tokenization of business ventures and debt. Um, I'm trying to think what else we're seeing. Oh, and then, and I guess, I guess I don't, this is sort of in a neutral zone, kind of in between, which is like assets in game. They're sort of real, or they're not really, they're almost real. They're assets beyond, they're not just on ledger assets. Um, like, it's kind of like an NFT that unlocks something. Like, this is like a, an NFT that unlocks something in a game. And so that's, I don't know, is that how, that's sort of more than a collectible, I guess. Yeah, I think gaming actually plays a huge role in the rise of Web3 and with NFTs in general. I think that, you know, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but I think gaming is really helped spark this movement. I, I will say that uh, you but you probably hear a lot of pushback from people who say that, well, there's no problem that it solves. There's nothing that it, but there is actually a problem that it solves in gaming. The problem in gaming, is, and I've talked to people who develop, who develop like games that, that you've definitely heard of. The problem that they have is they don't want to have 20 games in development at the same time. They want to have three or four. The, the fewer the number of games they have to develop, the more resources they can put in each game. So they would much rather have 300,000 users of one game than 100,000 users of each of three games because then each new feature that they add, a new expansion, has, a tr has triple the target market. The problem that they have is when a new game comes out, it has zero users. And when an old an old game gradually over time acquires users, and then it's not, but it's it's not like as attractive to the market because it's built on older technology, and so this creates a, a migration problem. And you would think, well, they could easily move users from old games to new games, but they can't. For the same reason, if you remember when you like when you graduate high school and you become a freshman at college, you go from being like the top of the heap to the bottom of the heap. Like every time you, when you leave an old game for a new game, you go from having everything unlocked and everything to having nothing. And so that's a big sort of, and you're completely like, something that allowed you to take some of what you had built from the older game into the newer game would make it easier for gaming companies to sort of sunset their older games and focus their development on their newer games. So there are real problems that they think that this technology could solve. It's not just a, you know, a solution looking for problems. So I think that, I think, I think that is also exciting. Yeah. I want to get your thoughts on something interesting because we're, we, you know, we've been talking about NFTs being built for the XRP ledger. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin NFTs or Bitcoin ordinals? <laughs> I just had to ask. I'm, yeah. I'm like super curious as to what you think about that because everybody's raving about it now. Well, and I've also heard, well, I, I just want to say that I think both sides have gotten like a little hysterical on this. And so I'm going to push back a little bit on both sides. So first on the hysteria against people like this threatens the fungibility of Bitcoin. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, 
people might really like serial. I might love dollar bills that have serial numbers with three consecutive nines, and there might be some craze for like finding serial numbers with interesting numbers or patterns on them. That's not going to make it harder for you to buy your groceries with with cash. I mean, that's not you know. I mean, that's not going to. The fact that there might be some bills that some people might associate more value with, and some people might go through all their bills, and some people just won't. And it's not going to hurt them in any tangible. It's not like your grocery store is going to be like, oh, no, we only want bills that have cool serial numbers because that's not their business. So it's 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 not a threat to the fungibility of, of Bitcoin. Um, on the other side, the hysteria in favor of it. I mean, you know, there's people who are going to collect all kinds of things. If anything that's rare, you know, someone will collect it. And I'm I don't necessarily think that's a big thing. But, you know, I, I, I would I, I hope that I can put it in the harmless fun category. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting because when I think of Bitcoin, I think of it as a store of value. Hmm. I don't think of it as a network that, you know, personally, I don't think of it as a network like Ethereum where people should build on. But I guess the <laughs> Bitcoin NFTs are, are opening up this whole new use case, which is actually it's great. You know, if you think about it, these new use cases for the Bitcoin blockchain. I think it's interesting to look at how anti-innovation so many people in crypto are, though. I think I, I mean, it's it's not the majority. It was at one point. It's not the majority. But I think I think that, you know, if, if people in this space are anti-innovation, I, I think they're in the wrong space. I think they're in the wrong space. I mean, come on. You know, when, what made Bitcoin interesting was people were saying, like, don't use the legacy technologies that enrich, you know, like the establishment. Here's this cool thing, Bitcoin. To see people like in the Bitcoin space who are like, don't use these cool new technologies, but, you know, use the use Bitcoin, which enriches like the, the, the miners and the people who hold Bitcoin. Like, come on, they've got a financial motive to do that. And they're anti-innovation. And if you see that, I, I will push back on that really hard. I'm very pro-innovation. And... Um, I'm I'm very pro like I would never tell somebody to use XRP or the XRP ledger because that benefits like that 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 may create financial benefits to people who hold XRP or people in the space like you know suffer nobody should suffer a technology for somebody else's benefit like that was what the old that was what we were protesting against when 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 in the early days of of, of cryptocurrency right in the early days it was like you have to use these technologies that enrich the establishment because that's all that's like available to you the whole counterpoint was that no there's like this wide set of things are available to you and you can pick the ones that work best for what you're trying to do the whole no middlemen kind of pitch you know someone else trying to get rich off what you're doing is kind of a middleman so I have a question sort of in that theme. You mentioned as employee number two, you remember all the decisions. Mm -hmm. um, enlighten us. Why was XRP Ledger decided to be a centralized platform? Well, in the very early days, we didn't have very much choice. Um, in, order, in order to make um, the, we use a technology that would generally be called federated Byzantine agreement. Um, and it needs, it needs people to run it. And like, somebody has to run the, the servers. But I would argue, like, as soon as the source code was released to the public, nothing would prevent, like, Ripple didn't have anything, any magic power that allowed them to control the XRP ledger. Just, just like the, like, people say that the, that people used to say that Bitcoin was centralized because the Bitcoin developers controlled the code, but they only control the code because people run the code that the Bitcoin developers push. Nothing prevents people from running their own code. There was no magic thing that Ripple had that allowed them to control the XRP ledger other than the people listened to us. That was all we had. So if you ask, like, like you say, Ripple ran the val, you know, Ripple ran the validators. Nothing prevented other people from running their own validators. The software was available. Nothing prevented them. Um, what basically happened is that there wasn't that much interest in in um, in other people sort of 
um, you know, building on the ledger. And I think, I, I think, um, trying to come up with a, with a, with a good, a good analogy, a good way to explain this clearly, like the problem with centralization is when you're reliant on a central party. And when you're reliant on a central party, it means that you can't easily not do what they want you to do. There was never anything preventing people from running their own validators, forking the network, and there still isn't today. If there's something about the XRP ledger that you don't like, whether it's connected, whether it has something to do with Ripple or nothing to do with Ripple, you can offer software that doesn't have, you know, has that feature or has that change that you want. You can run validators that support that feature the way that you want, and then people will decide which blockchain they want to be on. It's extremely, de it's extremely democratic, and it has been, I would argue, since the source code was public. Yeah, I mean, when I think of Ripple, I think of decentralization, but it's interesting that Deanna brought that up because, you know, there might be, I mean, gosh, it's like, I feel like there's so much confusion now around what's decentralized and what's not decentralized. You hear it all the time in this space. Oh, it's not decentralized because so-and-so can do this when, you know. Well, the way I, so first of all, if there are legal obstacles to sort of communicate to someone seizing control or, or changing the rules, then I would argue that that's definitely centralized, right? Like if, 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 if there's um, some, and if, the, if there's some entity that has some sort of secret sauce or some secret that you don't, so for example, eBay is centralized because I can start a competing eBay, but I can't get eBay's customer list. I can't get their banking relationships. Like eBay has intellectual property rights over the software that they use to operate the system. That's like a traditional centralized thing. When it becomes decentralized is when sort of there are none of those barriers to um, you changing the rules to the system. So for example, if you proposed a change in the rules of the XRP ledger, and let's just assume that, you know, Ripple says, Ripple, Ripple's like, no, that's terrible. That's, that's absolutely the worst thing in the world. Nothing prevents you from releasing software with those changes. Nothing prevents you from trying to persuade people that your software is better. And if people agree with you, then eventually what will happen, there, there's, there's nothing that Ripple could do to stop you from creating a competing chain. And then as happened with Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, if you remember, there was a disagreement over the rules in Bitcoin and someone created a competing set of rules. And what happened is for a short period of time, we didn't know which Bitcoin was going to be Bitcoin. And so the same thing could happen with the XRP ledger. Nothing stops anybody from publishing change, changing rules, changing the software, changing the set of validators that they use, changing any of those things. And then we won't know, which is the, like, obviously if nobody listens to you, then it's pretty clear that you're not gonna get anywhere. But if you have broad, again, in no blockchain can you force people to accept, not Ripple can't force people to accept rules that they don't want, and you can't force people to accept rules that they don't want. But if there's genuine support for your rules, then we won't know, and it could be that there's XRP and XRP cash, and we won't know which one's XRP and which one's XRP cash until the market, like nobody decided that Bitcoin was gonna be the one with segregated witness and Bitcoin cash was gonna be the one with bigger blocks. The market just sort of eventually shook it out that that was the way that people had decided. There was no entity that had the power to make that decision. And it's very much the same in the XRP ledger world. If there were ever disagreements over rules, there's no entity that has the power to say, this is gonna be the real one. This is gonna be the XRP ledger and XRP from now on. It's gonna be what the community adopts. Mm -hmm. So David, I wanna also ask you what your thoughts are on the crypto space in general right now. We're seeing a lot of challenges, especially in the United States. And we're seeing companies say they wanna go offshore. What are your thoughts on that? And like, is Ripple, Ripple is a US based company, correct? Or yeah, am I wrong? No, well, I mean, you know, Ripple, Ripple, the entity Ripple Labs Inc is incorporated, you know, in the United States and Delaware. Um, yeah, so 
first, like on the cryptocurrency space generally, it's not been a good year. Uh, one of the big, obviously, so there was the collapse of Terra, there was Celsius, there was, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. And that was particularly a bit of a gut shot. Number one, because it was a tremendous loss of liquidity, um, which is, you know, the ability to convert cryptocurrencies is fundamental to being able to use them for payments. And the other thing is Sam Bankman-Fried was to some extent like the face of cryptocurrency in Washington. And so rightfully so, like people who who you know, did photo ops with Sam Bankman-Fried and talked about how crypto was going to, you know, transform the economy now look like idiots. And, you know, and that's fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Justifiably, they're, they're anxious. They're, they're wondering, like, are, is this all a scam? Is this all illegitimate? And they're going to have to talk them off the ledge. And that sucks. And then there was the economy after COVID and a lot of cryptocurrency companies have been laying people off and have been rethinking their strategies. We've been very fortunate in that we've not, we, we've actually been able to snap up a lot of that talent. We hired about 350 people in the past 12 months, opened three new offices, because for us, it's kind of an opportunity because, you know, we're, 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 we're stable enough that we can play the long game. As far as regulation in the United States, it, it really has been somewhat frustrating. So we, we've tried to focus expansion offshore, you know, and obviously it's always a possibility for us to move more outside of the United States. I just hope that, that there's an opportunity to convince regulators that, that, that the United States is going to miss out on a wave of innovation. And, you know, the argument that I make to them is that imagine if the United States had decided that the Internet is enabling like radicalization of terrorists and theft of intellectual property and, and all these other things. And the United States had sort of clamped down on it. And, you know, China built the Internet, let's say, like it would it could be a very different Internet. And more importantly, like companies like like Microsoft and Cisco, you know, they would still exist. But would they be U.S. companies? You know, it's it's, it's an opportunity that, that that may be squandered. But I also understand their hesitancy. Like they, today, they may really feel like they're, they dodge, they're, they're, they're dodging a bullet and that, the, you know, the, the you know, the next if the if the FTX collapse didn't affect the United States, that would be great. You know, so yeah, it's it's a little it's 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 a little depress it's a little depressing. I hope that we don't have, wind up having to push all this innovation offshore. Personally, I think that would that would be a, a loss, a big loss for the United States. Yeah, I agree. Interestingly enough, Sam Bankman-Fried never let me interview him, and now I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there'd be pictures of you next to him and you asking him softball questions, and you agree. You're saying him saying something about how FTX is like bringing crypto to the masses, and you'd be like, I agree. You'd be like, Yeah. Right. Exactly. I, I did have an interview with him, and I wonder if anyone's gone over it to mine it for places where you I've interviewed him, or he interviewed you. We kind I'm of just had curious a, how that worked out. We kind of had a we kind of had a chat. I wonder if there's anything. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. Interesting. <laughs> Deanna, any thoughts on that? <laughs> oh gosh, too too many. <laughs> <laughs> any thoughts that you can share? Um, well, I think your your point about keeping innovation in, in America is a really really important one that um, especially the regulators need to hear more about um, because I, I don't think that's at, at the top of conversation enough, right? Pushing crypto mm -hmm. out means pushing innovation out, means pushing huge companies out, right? Which means a, a massive loss of revenue for the America, which is really the last thing we need right now. And a loss of the opportunity to shape how the technology evolves. Like, again, with my example of the internet, like if the internet had been built in China or Russia, or even in the in Europe, like would have would it have reflected American values about freedom of speech and expression, like as much as it does? I don't know that it I don't know that it would have, and I think that would be that would be a a, a much more tr a, a pretty tragic loss. 
So I'm curious, like, and I find it fascinating because I've been reporting on the space since 2017. I feel like I say that in every podcast, but I've seen so many changes happen. I've seen companies here and companies go away. And then, you know, one day they're successful and the next day they're gone. Ripple has always been successful, in my opinion. Like you guys have always been, and I'm not just saying this, like I actually truly mean it, a solid blockchain network that people want to use. Why has that been the case? So I'll push back a little bit and just say that the blockchain network is the XRP Ledger, Ripple's okay. the company. They've okay, both been very, yeah, no, they've totally. both been successful. That's a good, um, good thing to say. Yeah. So as far as the ledger success, I you know I was just thinking back on you know ten years of, of a blockchain that's been in operation for ten years, and there really have not been radical changes. There've never been a, there's, none of the changes that were made were radical. They were evolutions, not revolutions. I think. Um, I think part of it is just um, we made a lot of good decisions in the early. Not to pat my, but it turns Employee out we, number two. But a lot of them, a lot of them, we 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 just guessed right about a lot of things. But I think also just we 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 Ripple the company like acquired a team very early with a very broad skill set. Like I watched other companies that hired all like stereotypical young men right out of college who knew distributed systems and blockchains inside out, but nothing else. And the problem is if everybody you hire has the same strengths, they have the same weaknesses too. And those companies all sort of fell by the wayside because they couldn't build reliable systems. They couldn't withstand third-party audits. They didn't have a compliance department. Their contracts were terrible because they didn't have a solid legal department. We're very fortunate in that the company built up a, a, a multidiscipline team that had you know this big variety of strengths. I think part of the reason that the XRP Ledger has been successful is it like like we get like when when the XRP ledger was originally designed, proof of work was all there was. All the blockchains were Bitcoin clones. Like we built the Dex in 2012, we built um, you know stable coins and all of those things before anybody else. We sort of guessed right about the right solution to a lot of problems, and the community has sort of fine sort of been fine tuning it ever since. There's been a lot of work on in terms of like performance and security. And all of those things, but I also think to some extent, like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like the core, fun we believed in the early days that like payments were the core, and um, I think it. I think we we did that right and still do. It's a little bit mystifying to me that people don't use it more for payments. That's, that's one of the things that I agonize over, is like, and it's not just the XRP ledger. Like people generally don't use cryptocurrencies for payments or remittances. It's kind of frustrating to me because it seems like they should. Like it seems like the product market fits really good. But I mean, those those problems are well solved by the technology, and now I think we just have the challenge of adoption. I'm always hoping that there's going to be that exponential curve, you know, that hockey stick. But uh, the beginning of that always looks depressing. But I think we're starting to see, um, you know, like just, like just as one data points, XLS20 launched only six months ago, and there's something like 1.2 million NFTs. You know, there's five major marketplaces, major commercial market, like the rapid adoption. Um, of, of, of exciting new technologies. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your pitch. Imagine there's brands and enterprises listening right now who are skeptical of cryptocurrencies. What's your pitch to use crypto for payments? My pitch to use crypto for payments is that um, today, if you want to make rapid payments throughout the world, you have to deposit money around the world. Like you have to spread money. You have to do one of two things. You have to spread money around the world or you have to tie yourself to someone else who's done that. You have to tie your business to one counterparty whose money you are essentially using uh, for payment. 
Cryptocurrencies can move internationally across borders in minutes. You can keep a pile of funds wherever that makes sense for you, and you can have it where you need it in a, in a, in a small number of seconds. That's, you know, that, that, that's a capability that, like, if you wanted to do that in the traditional finance world, you would literally need hundreds of payment engineers to maintain interoperability with, you know, dozens and dozens of other systems. So I think that that, that ability of, of, um, to, move mo to move money so quickly, I think one other thing to point out, and this is, this is uh, something that a lot of people don't, don't appreciate, a huge difference between a cryptocurrency and a fiat currency is the ease of payment. Like, let's say I wanted to pay you $10. You want $10, I have $10. If we're in the same room and I have a $10 bill, that's great. If we both have PayPal, that's great. But if, we, if there isn't some overlapping system, if I have my money in a bank in the UK and you're unbanked and you need you know, all you can accept is someone handing, you know, your grocery store handing a dollar bill over the counter, it may be very difficult for us to find a way to make that work. Cryptocurrencies, if I have 10 XRP and you want 10 XRP, there is a 99.9995% chance that you can give me an XRP ledger address and a destination tag and I can pay to that address and tag. The default, the default position of cryptocurrencies is that they work for payments. And the default position of fiat is it may or may not work depending on whether where the fiat is and how those systems are plugged. And that's a, that's a big difference. Right. But also with crypto, I mean, you know, the prices are not stable unless it's a stable coin. Yeah. So if, you know, I want to buy $10, a $10 coffee using XRP and the, the you know, um, the worth and the value of XRP is constantly changing. Yeah. I might not be able to afford that coffee depending on the amount of XRP I have. So the problem with that is so there's an easy workaround, but the problem is the workaround comes with some its own caveat. So the easy workaround is you buy the XRP right, right at the time that you buy the coffee. And so therefore, and then if, if necessary, the person who you bought the coffee from sells the XRP, right? When, so let's say you don't want any exposure and they don't want any exposure. So what winds up happening is you buy XRP, you use the XRP to buy the coffee, and then they sell the XRP in a very short amount of time. That eliminates the volatility problem, but you can immediately think of why that's not a spectacularly great solution. So that means you have to be able to do all that stuff, and the person you're buying the coffee from has to do all that stuff, and none of those things are free. And so the cost of doing those things has to be less than the cost of you just buying the coffee, however else you would do it. And if that's you buying a coffee at your local Starbucks, it's probably going to lose. And that's why I think you saw this huge trend of companies like we take Bitcoin and then that trend stopped and now they've all backslid on it and they, because in in the case of where the competing payment is, you know, not that bad, um, then the inconvenience of, you know, you having to buy and sell on both ends or at least on one end, um, you know, there's nothing outweigh it. So you need a situation where the, where, the, where the payment doesn't work very well to begin with. And so remittances are a good example of a situation where the payment doesn't work very well to begin with. And another one is like small payments. Like if I want to hire somebody in France to take an unusual angle picture of the Eiffel Tower for me right now, like I could find somebody who's willing to do that, but how could I pay them? Yeah. And like a cryptocurrency, there I'm not super concerned about, about the, uh, it's just the cost of the, trans the transaction cost is a limiting factor. Right, yeah, I mean, paying someone, especially when it comes to stable coins that are actually stable and work well, they're great for well, payments. Yeah. 
Tara, Tara was, you know, that, yeah, that's that's definitely a possibility. Um, but I also think that, like, if you imagine a world where it's, where stable coins are, are very very successful, it's not just going to be one because a stable coin, a, sta- a stable coin that's stable for me in the United States is not necessarily stable for somebody in Mexico or somebody in the UK. And so you're still going to need some system to provide interoperability and liquidity between stable coins. And stable coins are always going to be tied to a jurisdiction. I don't. I don't, except for algorithmic stable coins, nobody knows how to build an algorithmic stable coin. Algorithmic stable coins are like nuclear reactors. When they work, they work great, but they have occasional spectacular failures, and we're not really sure how to make sure they don't. And so, you know. Or flat coins, which are what they're tied to inflation. That's what a friend of mine is doing. Yeah, so basket of currency coins are are interesting. But again, those. The, the counterparty that's stabilizing them has to be in some jurisdiction, which is going to create some. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I, I'm not going to be – I'm never going to be the one who's going to tell you not to look at a technology because there's some competing technology that I have some financial interest in, you know, better. I want people to get the best experiences. And, of course, it's on the people who are promoting individual technologies to make those technologies the best solution to some real-world problem. And so all of those things are, all of those things are interesting to me. Yeah. Um, we're going to wrap up in a little bit. So, David, I want to know what can we expect next from Ripple? What are you most excited about? What are the biggest innovations that we can look forward to at Ripple and with the XRP ledger? Well, the one that I'm personally most excited about, but this may have to do with quirks of my personality, is the automated market maker proposal. I'm just personally really excited about that. You know, I've been trading um, Forex and other other types of, of, of market making for 30 plus years and just the way the automated market maker works. So I'll get the short version of why it's interesting to me is in almost every other arena, volatility is a minus. An automated market maker turns volatility into yield, um, which is super. And I could go on an hour about the math, but um, volatility is inefficiency and inefficiency can always be solved at a cost. You can always make a profit by reducing some inefficiency um, unless there are more. And normally you can't because there are market obstacles. So, for example, trading stocks is expensive and slow and, and, and all that. But the transaction fee on the XRP ledger is a tiny, tiny fraction of a penny. The transaction completion time is, you know, 10 seconds or less. Um, so. So, like, the, the mechanics, to, the efficiency is so high, it's going to be very interesting to me to see, you know, what that, what that does as far as, you know, how that performs. Super exciting for me personally. I don't know that other people are as excited about it as I am. I hope they, I hope they are because I, I think it's cool. And we've done some, you know, some unique things in the way we implemented it, ways that I think will, will improve the, essentially the yield. It's effectively a way to lend money to an automated machine that makes money through trade through implementing trading strategies and through making markets. So we'll see how we'll see we'll see if that delivers on uh, on my excitement. I think you'll see obviously you'll see continued growth of the NFT space into areas I'm hoping things like carbon markets and and tokenizing of, of real world assets. Um, but I think also you're going to see movement on the on the Web three and DeFi space. Um, we're working internally right now. We have proposals for things like identity and sanctions compliance, and I think. Uh, Tokenization, liquidity, you know, compl- compliance, compliance is, is the, especially sanctions compliance. So I think you're going to see interesting stuff from us. And I should mention that we're always hiring. We hired 350 people in the last year, three new offices. Uh, great place to work. A successful company, as you po- a historically yeah. successful company. Hire me. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no more Web3 deep dive. Just kidding. <laughs> Um, wait, what are your thoughts on AI? Is are, is Ripple doing anything with AI by chance? Ripple Ripple isn't currently. Um, 
I'm one of those people who I, 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 I'm super excited by, by what I've seen. There's been so much uh, transformation in such a short period of time. I'm not one of those people who's super concerned, although I definitely have people who are trying to convince me that people who have opinions I respect, who are experts on AI, who are trying to convince me that like the, the sky is falling. Um, I've managed to not believe them yet, but we'll see. We'll see how we'll see how that goes. Uh, you know, I've I've interacted with with um, ChatGPT and some of the other large language models, and I have to say that, like, compared to what was possible a year ago, their capabilities are are, are, are spooky. They're just really, really, really good. And I think that a lot of people focus on the things that they do badly, and every technology is going to have some things it does badly what matters is is there a significant real world use case that it does well and and i think there really there there definitely is Deanna, any final thoughts for david any final questions uh, i'm just so pleased to have this conversation with you today and hear your insights someone who's been in the industry for so long and still so positive on innovation and um, all the, the good things to come. One of the things you said in the very beginning was for customers that don't exist yet, mm -hmm. right? Solving problems for customers that don't exist yet and, and problems we don't even know about yet. Um, are there any that are top of mind for you that you could enlighten us on? I think, I think the future world where people have a sort of a wallet that's a sort of universal store of value. So that could mean tokenized stocks, that could mean cryptocurrencies, that could mean fiat assets, that could mean digital rights to things that they've purchased, it could mean NFTs for collectibles, games. This idea that you have a person who, when they get paid, let's say you, know, let's say you get paid every two weeks, you get paid um, and that money comes in and you can, uh, you can have whatever you want to have happen to that money. And when you go to the grocery store and you get that bill and you go to pay the bill, that money, that payment can come out of your portfolio of things that you hold however you want. And you could be a millionaire or you could be, you know, someone in a third world country whose whose net worth is less than the cost of this microphone. And you would have access to that same set of tools. Obviously, you'd be using them on a different scale, but you would have that you would have the same set of options. You like holding gold? You can you when you when you get paid, you could have tokenized gold. And when you go to pay you know, at the grocery store, you're using tokenized gold that's being sold. And, and it's, it's just everything in one place. And that means like when you gift money to other people, when you pass away, your heirs don't have to go looking for your assets spread all over the place. Um, you have just so much more control and can make financial decisions um, on that sort of more controlled basis. And I think I, I'll also go back to the very, very first vision that was associated with Ripple. It actually goes back to Ryan Fugger in 2004, believe it or not. And he had this vision of individuals who, if you need it, like if you need money, you might, um, you know, if you're not very well banked, you might um, get a payday loan or something terrible or leave money on a credit card because borrowing money from people is extremely inconvenient. Like you have to ask somebody if you can borrow money from them and they have to say yes or no. And if they say no, it's awkward. If they say yes, you have to remember to pay them back. And what if you pay them back and they forget that you paid them back or they have to ask you to pay? Like all of those things can be automated and made painless. And I think uh, financial openness is financial is the you know people in the United States talk about religion, they talk about politics, they talk about sex in ways that they didn't you know just a few years ago. The only thing we still don't talk about and that we don't have open discussions about is money. Like the only question that's impolite to ask someone pretty much is how much do you make? That's like the like the the only area that we don't. And so maybe that's going to change. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll have to wait and see. So we have a few minutes. David, any final thoughts that you want to add before we end the interview? 
I know. I just want to say it's fantastic to be here. Your studio is 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 great. This has been a lot of fun, and thanks for the opportunity to share. You know, my my view my view and Ripple's view on Web three. I think I did a little of both. Yeah, anytime. And then if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Is it your Twitter handle, Joel Katz? Or? Yeah, for, for me, at Joel Katz, for Ripple, Ripple.com. Again, I have to plug this. We are always hiring. We really are trying to attract the best talent, and we are a great place to work. I'm not just saying that. Yeah, awesome. Well, David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Mm, pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, David. <laughs> Thank you to Web3 Deep Dive's executive producer, Deanna Dial-Wursta. Thank you to Web3 Deep Dive's director, Alex Wilcox. And thank you to Web3 Deep Dive's producer, Mark Gamo. I also want to thank Donna Albo for providing the music for this podcast. And of course, thank you to the listeners for joining us for this episode of Web3 Deep Dive. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to like, comment, subscribe, and share so you can help spread the love and get the word out there about Web3 Deep Dive. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks.